everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for January 23rd, 2021. Apologize to everybody that this is coming out a day late. Uh, I went to LA last night, drove six hours, and uh, went to a Kevin Smith Live podcast report, uh, recording. My thought was, well, maybe we can record the uh, the new Comic Wednesday episode in the car uh, when I'm driving back, but it just logistically wasn't a good idea. Um, so anyway, uh, apologize for that. It was kind of a last minute thing and I needed to go and do. Um, so hopefully we can get some uh, positive results out of it. Maybe uh, have Kevin come on the show. So we'll see. Um, anyway, let me get into the books that we're going to talk about this week. I'm going to be going over 11 books. Just a reminder, not going to talk about any DC stuff here. Uh, as per usual, we did a, a DC spotlight that came out Tuesday, same day the DC books are released. And fair warning, if you go and listen to the DC podcast, it has full spoilers, right? We go in-depth, Rocky from Comic Boom and I, and we talk about story beats and plot points and characters and events in those books. So it's what you guys seem to like, and we're happy to provide it for you. However, this one, New Comic Wednesday episode, as always, spoiler-free. So I'm going to talk in general about some of these great titles that uh, came out today uh, as uh, I record this and yesterday as you listen to this. So I will point out, uh, if you look over my shoulder here, you see that there are uh, a couple of books, the, the two big uh, ones that you can see here if you're watching on, uh, on YouTube, uh, Shadecraft number four and Blue Flame number two. Absolutely amazing. So, so good. Uh, continuing that trend we've had recently of independent comics really sort of stealing the show. So, you know, I'm going to talk about them uh, in a couple minutes here in general, but I really do recommend if you're not reading these two books, you really need to check them out. They're both amazing in different ways. Um, much like uh, some of the other books we've talked about recently, Radiant Black, uh, specifically really subvert the genre and, and are giving us interesting twists and interesting uh, events in the stories that maybe we're not expecting. And that's what's great, right? That it can still surprise you. And not to say that there aren't good comics coming out from Marvel and DC because there are, but I don't know. It, as I read more and more of the, the books these days, it's like, if you're telling a story about established characters that have been around for a long time that have had, in some cases, literally thousands of stories told about them, at some point, it becomes kind of tough to keep things fresh. And there's certain things you can't do because they're million, if not billion dollar uh, intellectual property assets, right? So we've talked about it before, uh, but that's not to say there aren't some great comics coming out. And, uh, and Shadecraft 4 and Blue Flame 2 are certainly examples of that. So uh, all that being said, I'm going to start with the big two book, Way of X number three. This is from writer Cy Spurrier. Bob Quinn handles the art. Java... Tartagilla or Tartagaglia is the color artist. Clayton Cowles does letters designed by Tom Muller as all these uh, DC or uh, not DC, but X-Men books uh, are, are all, they're all designed by Tom Muller. It's all his, uh, when you see those text pages and what have you, the way that the um, uh, covers are and, and splash pages and, uh, credits pages and whatnot. It's all, it's all Tom Muller, just incredible, incredible design sense. Uh, anyway, this is sort of the way of X is sort of the, the religious book of, uh, of the X universe. If you could 
talk about it that way. And we saw last issue that it was revealed to Nightcrawler by Legion that the big sort of threat to the X-Men is that it's possible that Onslaught is back. So that's a real blast from the past. Onslaught was sort of this, um, this incredibly powerful enemy of the X-Men in the nineties. And he was responsible for the heroes reborn event, supposedly uh, kind of a marketing gimmick and kind of interesting that maybe he's back here while Marvel has a heroes reborn heroes return event going on uh, just coincidence, but it's pretty interesting. And the whole idea behind onslaught is he was manifested by professor Xavier's powers um, due to Xavier having housed Magneto's psyche for a little while. And it kind of fractured and developed this new personality that then split off from, from Professor X. So uh, we thought he was dead. Apparently not. He's on the island, possibly. Either that or people are just seeing things, Nightcrawler specifically. Um, but what does he have planned? And that's all amongst the subtext of the, the other part of the series so far. As I said, it's sort of the religious book of the, the X universe here where Nightcrawler, who's always been of strong Catholic faith, is sort of struggling because he sees that there's something wrong. There's something wrong societally, culturally among the, the Krakoans, right? Um, they've, they've, the mutants have established this nation. It's a great accomplishment, what they've, what they've done, but what next, right? Like you can't just be on vacation forever. You can't just like, there's no one to challenge them. And so for the lack of a better term, it, it almost seems like they're, becoming debauched or they're um, there's something rotten there, right? Like it's not, there's no purpose. Uh, it's almost like they're, they're too, I don't want to say too powerful, too complacent, maybe, um, you know, like I said, there's not, there's no struggle. And so there's no kind of reason to get up in the morning and you, you can fall into, you know, bad habits. So, as I said, Nightcrawler is sensing this, that, that they need a purpose. They need something to follow, to have faith in, to keep from making bad decisions, keep from giving it into temptation because they literally have, they live in this paradise. They can do whatever they want and it can lead to, to bad decisions. So it's sort of an interesting dichotomy between how successful the mutants have been with creating their own island and maybe too much of a good thing. Um, so I think Cy Spurrier, I've said this before, he's the perfect writer to be writing this. Uh, and then, of course, we have the subtext of, hey, what's going on with Onslaught? And is is Nightcrawler really the one, based on his past beliefs, is he really the one to sort of save everybody, save save all the mutant souls, right? Like uh, the, the Quiet Council and the rest of the really powerful Omega-level mutants that really got Krakoa off the ground and, and got this mutant nation started they were more concerned with sort of the, the physical well-being of mutants, give them a place where they can live, where they can survive, where they can thrive physically, but nobody's ever stopped to think, well, we need to take care of these mutants spiritually. And that's where Nightcrawler comes in. And, and like I said, be, because of what Krakoa represents, because of the fact that they can resurrect mutants. I mean, it, it's got to sort of play havoc with some of his beliefs, right? It, it sort of throws, some of the beliefs out the window in terms of what Catholic dogma is. Um, so I think Nightcrawler is struggling with that as well. But again, there's a lot of big, big ideas in this book 
and uh, the artwork by Bob Q is fantastic. So really curious to see what happens. I'm not, I'm not the biggest onslaught fan. Uh, I think he's sort of tropey, but uh, maybe Sticebreaker can do something interesting with him here. I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. So uh, it's one of the few X-Books that I'm caught up on. Granted, it's only three issues, but I've actually read all three and uh, I'm really enjoying it every month when it comes out. So, all right. Up next is uh, another Marvel book. It's Amazing Spider-Man number 69. This is Chameleon Cons Conspiracy Part 3. It's written by Nick Spencer and Ed Brisson. We have Z. Carlos, Carlos Gomez, and Marcelo Ferreira on pencils. Z, Carlos, Carlos Gomez, and Wayne Fokker on inks. Andrew Cosley and Maury Hollowell on colors. And Joe Caramagna does the letters. Now, I'm not 100% sure if Ed Brisson is taking over The Amazing Spider-Man. I think that would be awesome if he was. Sometimes when you have these co-writers, it's it's like one guy has plotted it and then the other guy is, is about to take over the series and you'll see you know multiple credit. Uh, but again, I haven't heard anything. I didn't notice anything in the solicits. Uh, Ed hasn't mentioned anything that, that I've seen on social media. Um, but this chameleon conspiracy story has been pretty fun so far. Uh, I talked about it last issue, and it feels like Nick Spencer is bringing back more of a classic feel. Um, and it's not that I don't have a problem with his long-form storytelling because we've talked about how he drags things out, never ends them. You know, it's like you can do like, Bendis and everything can be decompressed and drag it out forever. And that's its own problem. Um, Nick Spencer doesn't give us any lack of story. Um, you know, I don't finish reading a, an issue of amazing Spider-Man and feel like nothing happened the way I do with a, a Bendis justice league issue, but they both have trouble ending stories like Bendis, maybe more so with even giving us a satisfying conclusion. Nick Spencer just, he never gets to the end of the story, right? Like we thought we were going to get the end of the, the kindred storyline and it just keeps going. Um, so it's a problem. So I, I, and I, I, I like Nick Spencer. I like there's work he's done in the past. I think it's absolutely brilliant, but I, I just don't know at this point if, if I want a different writer on amazing Spider-Man, I kind of feel like I do I kind of feel like it's time for a change. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that I haven't got, I don't feel like I've gotten a complete story from Nick Spencer. Uh, and even when we do get a story that supposedly has a resolution, like the life tablet story, it really just rolls into something else. The life tablet story rolling into this idea of the, the, uh, the Kingpin's son, the Rose has been resurrected. So in a way we still haven't gotten the end of that because we don't know the consequences of him coming back. So it's like you had the life tablet story and the search for that, the kind of Indiana Jones esque adventure to collect the, the uh, pieces of the life tablet. At least we got the end of that story, but not overall. I mean, we got the end to that portion of the, the, the MacGuffin hunt portion of the life tablet story, but not the actual life tablet story overall, I would argue, because again, the rose is back and doesn't even show up in this issue. So, uh, you know, Nick Spencer, has got a lot of great ideas, but so many that you can't even fit them all in one book. And even here, in this chameleon conspiracy book, we get a lot of the more immediate storylines that's going on with um, Peter Parker's lab partner, Jamie, and the, the device that can predict the future, the clairvoyant device, um, and Chance and the foreigner and all that sort of fighting. And we also get more of the uh, story about Teresa Parker, uh, Peter's super spy sister, who's face-to-face -face with the man who supposedly killed their parents, the finisher that we saw last 
issue and also the finisher's protege chameleon which is where we get the chameleon conspiracy storyline so all that is packed in this issue and it's a lot oh plus betty brant is back and she's pregnant oh and who's the dad ned Leeds, who we thought was dead and now apparently nick spencer's brought him back so there's a lot there's a lot going on in this issue um but because of that and because nick spencer has so many different plot threads going on but he never ends any of them there's not even enough room in each issue to give us all the threads. Like we don't see anything with Kingpin. We don't see anything with Rose. We don't see anything with Norman Osborn. We don't see anything with Kindred. So, and I get it. There's not really room based on the action. And, and it's not like this is a technically bad comic. It's put together very well. Um, it's, there's a ton of action, great art. Uh, we get a couple of pages at the very end that are teasing the, this uh, sinister six story that's coming up where Dr. Octopus is out there um, putting the sinister sticks back together, basically. And we have this, uh, the sinister war story that's, that's Marvel's been teasing this event. So, you know, technically it's well done and it's well paced, but again, my, my criticism of amazing Spider-Man is going to be, there's too much going on. Uh, you gotta finish off some storylines. And, and it's so weird for me to say that, right? Because uh, so many recent comics, and you can make the argument again, chicken or egg, right? Bendis or decompressed storyline, uh, writing for the trade, or was it Bendis being popular on Ultimate Spider-Man that made that happen? Did it not? Again, you, that argument can be made. But one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is you would get very few storylines that ran for longer than six issues. Everything's wrapped up nice and neat because people are writing for the trade. So I don't want to sound like... Um, I don't give Nick Spencer credit for going the other way. Cause I've talked to man. I, I, I miss the days of the comics of the, the 80, the kind of the bronze age into the eighties the when I was really reading a ton of stuff in high school or whatnot. And you'd have those long, those longer form stories that would sometimes take a year or two because you had, you know, plot a plot B plot C. And then, you know, that once you resolve plot a B would move up and then C and you'd start other um, subplots and, I miss that. I miss, okay, everything's wrapped up in a nice, neat bundle after six issues and you don't even need to keep reading the title. And I've complained about that in the past. So I don't want to sound like a hypocrite and say, man, Nick Spencer's got too much going on, but he sort of, he sort of does. Cause you have, again, to go back to my earlier criticism, you have to finish off some of those stories and then you bring in others rather than having like six different plot threads going on at once. It's, it's just a little too much. It makes for a busy comic. It's hard to remember you know, with the amount of comics I read these days, it's hard to remember what's going on. Thank God Marvel does the uh, the recap paragraphs inside the front cover. Um, but yeah, like I, uh, all, all that being said, uh, I, I did enjoy this issue. The art, like I said, is spectacular. Great color work, great dialogue. And and yeah, I hope uh, either Ed Brisson is, is taking over or he's going to be co-writing because I think he could bring a lot to the book. I've talked a lot in the past and even with Ed himself about how he even though he's doing superhero comics, he oftentimes grounds them in a way that makes them more relatable. Um, and I just really enjoy that. I really enjoy his, his style of writing. So big Ed Brisson fans. So like I said, I hope he's either going to be co-writing for a while or, or taking over. Um, Cause that can, that can maybe shore up some of the, the, I don't want to say shortcomings, but kind of strengthen the, the parts where maybe Nick Spencer is not as strong. Uh, all right. I guess I'm doing all the Marvel first. Well, 
Yeah, I guess so. Because uh, Captain America number 29 is up next, written by Kelly Thompson. The art in this issue is by Jacopo Kamani, Kamagni, Kamagni, C-A-M-A-G-N-I. The G is probably silent. silent. It's probably Kamani. Uh, but I apologize, Jacoby, if I'm mispronouncing either either your first or last name. Uh, colors are by Espin Grudergen. Letters by Clayton Cowles. This is part two of Strange Magic. We did see last issue that Carol believes that she needs to learn magic in order to stop Ove from bringing apart the horrible future that she lived through where um, Jim Rhodes was dead and you know, everything was dystopian and, and terrible. And so he, she, she needs to learn magic so she can stop Ove, who's the child of the Enchantress. And so she goes to, to Stephen Strange and she asks to be taught magic and he refuses her at the end uh, or at, uh, during the last issue. And at the end, and, and he, he says, no, you, you don't, you don't have the right reasons for wanting to learn magic. And so she basically goes around to all the different magic wielding heroes of the Marvel universe. And she asks to be taught. And nobody will teach her. Everybody has reasons not for her not wanting to teach her. So at the end of the issue, at the end of issue 28, she turns to the Enchantress because she figures the Enchantress might want to uh, to train her. And that's sort of where this issue picks up. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to give away anything in terms of how Carol convinces the Enchantress or if she's able to convince the Enchantress to train her. But what I will say is that Kelly Thompson nails the characterization of the Enchantress really, really well. And uh, this isn't as action-packed of an issue um, as we've seen from, from Thompson and, uh, and her creative partners uh, before. But what I will say is it's one of the best character moments, one of the best character issues for uh, Carol, because not only does uh, Kelly Thompson nail the characterization of the Enchantress. We get some really sort of self-revealing and um, self-analytical moments from, from Carol here. Carol's very self-aware of what she's doing and how she may be making decisions, not necessarily with logic at, at the forefront, you know, she realizes that some of her motivations are more emotionally charged um, as she's trying to prevent this uh, possible future from coming around. So it makes for a very uh, impactful issue. And, and I just love the self-awareness uh, that Carol brings. And that's not to say there's no action at all, because there is. And there's humorous moments as well. Um, you know, there's this is the like issues like this are the reason that Kelly Thompson was my writer of the year for 2020, because even though it's not as action packed as previous issues, there's enough of it there to make it feel like a, a Captain Marvel book and a superhero comic, but where it shines is in the little moments of characterization and humor. There's a great interaction between Rhodey and Dr. Strange. And then that introspection that Carol uh, is giving us. Plus she's wearing her kick-ass new, uh, magic wielding costume, I guess you'd call it. That's absolutely amazing. There's a Marco Cicchetto uh, cover, the main cover, which is awesome. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was fantastic. Um, ultimately, I don't think Carol's going to end up as a magic user, and she probably shouldn't. She's already one of the most powerful heroes 
in the Marvel universe, she shouldn't, uh, she shouldn't need magic. Um, and honestly, and again, this is great characterization from Kelly Thompson because it makes perfect sense with the way Carol has been portrayed from, from the issue one of the series. What Carol needs to do is she needs to ask for help. She needs to open up to some of her fellow heroes. Hey, this is where I was, this horrible future, this guy named Ove. We need to make sure it doesn't happen. She needs to let somebody in. She needs to ask for help, um, but she's sort of in, incapable. Um, and I, I can relate to that. Um, there are times that you just want to do things for yourself or you, you feel the responsibility to take care of things without asking for help. Um, and that's where Carol is right now, sort of. She, she doesn't realize it, it takes more strength at times to ask for help than to try to take care of it yourself. So very curious to see how this wraps up uh, next issue with part three of three uh, with Carol and this magic quest. And uh, again, great, great issue, great series, gorgeous cover, beautiful art. Uh, highly recommend Captain Marvel. If you're, if you're not reading it, you, you definitely should. Uh, all right. Next Marvel book. I'm going to talk about fantastic Four: a life story uh, issue. Number two, the seventies written by Mark Russell. The art is by Sean Izoxi. colors by Nolan Woodard letters by Joe Caramagna. This was, this was good. Um, I had some issues with the first issue and those issues are still here in issue two. Uh, those the problems or what I disliked about the series, I guess, are still here in issue two. But what I've what I've sort of done is I've stopped thinking of this. And again, it's it's fantastic for a life story. So I couldn't help right from the beginning when I read it compare it to the Spider Man life story series that uh, Chip Zdarsky did, and. Zdarsky, he stayed pretty true to who Spider-Man was and the events of Spider-Man's life, even though things were happening in real time. You know, the whole idea of these life stories is each issue tells the story of the characters in one particular decade. So, you know, if it's a six-issue series, you're going to start off with the first issue is the 60s, second issue is the 70s, third would be 80s, fourth would be 90s, fifth would be 2000s, and the sixth would be the 2010s, right? Um, and so the, the people in the, the series, the heroes, whether it be Fantastic Four in this case or Spider-Man in the case of the uh, Chip Zdarsky uh, Spider-Man life story uh, was Spider-Man, obviously. Um, but in that series, in the Spider-Man life story, uh, Zdarsky, he did a good job of staying true to the events that happened to Spider-Man, even though we frame them in the context of what, hap- what was happening in the real world at the time, whether it be Vietnam War, Cold War, whatever. Um, he did a great job. And so it still felt like the Spider-Man story we knew, but what he did was he brought a realism to it with the aging in real time and a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount of emotion, more insight and introspection from Peter Parker as Spider-Man framed within the events that were familiar. Now with Fantastic Four life story, the problems that, that I had or, or what I called Mark Russell out on in the first issue was it, the motivations and the character relationships have changed so much. It doesn't feel recognizable as the Fantastic Four. Like he fundamentally changed the relationship between Reed Richards and Ben Grimm so much so that it's completely unrecognizable that relationship 
of uh, to what we actually have in the real Marvel universe. Now, again, they're both called Life Story, Spider-Man Life Story, and this one Fantastic Four. So I couldn't help but compare. As I was reading the second issue, what I what I discovered and and kind of my way I had to change my thinking so that I could look at it from a different perspective and enjoy it for what it is. As I started thinking about it as, okay, got to think of this as a what if story, right? Not a let's take the fantastic four, you know, and just extend their timeline, which is kind of what it felt like Zdarsky did with Spider-Man. We just, instead of, you know, that magical comic book time where maybe only five years, 10 years has passed since they've made their debut decades have passed. Uh, and in the case of Spider-Man, we still got a lot of the same events. They're framed differently, a lot of emotion. With the Fantastic Four story, it's, it's, I mean, they go to space and they get bombarded with cosmic radiation. But other than that, a lot of things are not recognizable. Uh, and we saw that in the first issue and that continues here in the second issue. So in order for me to just not get completely caught up going, well, that's not right, or that's changed or whatever. I just had to throw all that out, just put it aside and just read this as a, a what if story. Like, and and you, there's any number of, of questions you could, you could ask for the fantastic four turning out like this, right? Like maybe you could say, what if, Reed Richards and Ben Grimm didn't meet until the night they took off in the rocket and how the domino effect of that butterfly effect, if you prefer that term would fundamentally change Reed Richards and Ben Grimm and their relationship and the fantastic four and thus the whole world, right? Like throw a, a pub, a pebble into a pond and the ripples, you know, spread out and start affecting more and more and more molecules of water, same thing, take something very small. Reed Richards and Ben Grimm weren't friends in college, uh, didn't meet until the night the rocket took off. So that in turn, we saw this in the first issue, led to Ben struggling more with his identity and his uh, appearance as the thing. And he didn't have that friendship, that bond with Reed to kind of help him through that. And so it, it caused problems between the two and thus for all the Fantastic Four. And again, ripples in a pond, and it goes out. So once I was able to think of it that way and stop looking at, well, no, that that's completely different. That's completely different. That's completely different. Cause this is a whole different timeline. I mean, it's radically different. We haven't had a lot of touchstones to where I can point in the book and go, okay, yeah, this is where we are in the fantastic four history. This is where we are. Uh, it's just not that Mark Russell is telling a completely different story. It's not to say that it's bad. It's just radically different. And again, just approaching it from that idea of, okay, this is a what if, stop looking for the touchstones, stop looking for references to events you know, and just read it for what it is. And it's a, it's an interesting story. I mean, we have a, a very different read based on something that happened in the first issue. I won't spoil it, um, which in turn ends up with a, a different relationship, not only with Ben Grimm, but also with his wife, um, Sue Storm, who eventually becomes Sue Richards. So I am really enjoying this uh, after this second, uh, after the second issue, based on the strength of the second issue, which is narrated by Sue, by the way, uh, I'm, he pulled me in Mark Russell. He, he got me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on board for the rest of this, uh, rest of the series. And I almost didn't read the second issue uh, because of, you know, the problems that I had with issue one that I, that I mentioned about just things being so radically different, but 
you know, I always say, got to give a, a book at least two issues. That's so hard to judge on just one issue, especially if it's an issue number one, because first issues are so tough to do. Um, so I'm like, no, let me go ahead and read it. And I'm glad I did because it is super engaging and super interesting. And the art is fantastic. The color work is great. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, wouldn't say it's dialogue heavy, but at times there's a lot of scripting because not only do you have the characters in the panels uh, talking and, and give, you know, write that sort of, uh, as it happens narrative, Sue narrates the book as well. So you've got her, uh, little dialogue boxes. So at times it can feel uh, like there's a lot here to read. So I've always got to call out good pacing, uh, when it comes to lettering, uh, and Clayton Cowles, or uh, sorry, Joe Caramagna, who lettered this, is, is one of the best. And he does a great job of leading your eye around the page and, and making sure that you read it at the right pace and give uh, give time to look at that tremendous line work. And, you know, at times it's it's kind of tough. Where do you find placement for these uh, these word balloons and dialogue boxes and whatnot without covering up that beautiful art? He does a great job of that as well. So I do recommend... A fantastic for life story. And if you have that problem that I did about God, I just don't recognize these characters. Um, just do, do like I did just frame it as a, what if just think of it as a, what if story and see if that helps you. It definitely helped me. Uh, all right. Up next is gamma flight number one of five. So this is a mini series spinning out of the uh, immortal Hulk series. And it is written by the uh, immortal Hulk writer, Al Ewing, this time he's joined by writing partner, Crystal Frazier. Lan Medina handles the art, Antonio Fabella on colors. Joe Sabino does the letters and the design. And Gamma Flight Part 105, Gamma Flight we know currently to be Puck, Crusher Creel, uh, Titania, and uh, Leonard Sampson, who most people would know as Doc Sampson, but he's <laughs> they call him Doc Sasquatch here because he's stuck in the body of Sasquatch. Uh, and then... There's also Dr. Charlene McGowan, who was a member of Shadow Base when in the Immortal Hulk when General 14 was trying to take out the Immortal Hulk. And then we've also got the, the Rick Jones, Del Fry amalgamation character that the leader kind of stuck together. So we know they were trying to, to capture the Hulk. We know that they, they themselves are fugitives right now from their former employer. Uh, Henry Peter Guyrich, who's a classic Marvel character. So they're looking for the Hulk there. And while they're hunting for the Hulk and hunting for Samson's real body and hunting for a cure for Rick Jones and uh, hoping to uh, find the Hulk and, and solve that problem, they themselves are being hunted as well. So with the Immortal Hulk series coming to an end with issue 50, and I think it's either one or two more issues we have of that, I'm glad Gamma Flight is getting its own uh, mini series because there's some plot threads to to tie up here. These are interesting characters. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, and maybe it's just because I I love that classic Marvel superhero Secret Wars uh, twelve issue mini series that sort of started the whole idea of uh, summer events, if you will. Uh, although I guess you know twelve issues it, it actually lasted a year, um, but that's where Titania first made her uh, appearance. And it's where her and Crusher Creel first got together as, as boyfriend and girlfriend. So um, I love that. I, I, lo I love their their relationship. And, you know, there's a little bit of edge to Crusher. I mean, he was 
a villain for a long time. Argument can be, be made. He's more of an anti-hero now. Same thing with Titania. Um, but I like him framed in this context. I'm a big fan of, of Charlene McGowan. I think she's a really interesting character that, um, that Al Ewing created. Obviously, Doc Sampson in the Wendigo or the Sasquatch body. Um, Gamma Sasquatch body is interesting as well. Really want to see Rick Jones return to normal. He's had a, such a rough ride. God, writers, man, they've really put Rick through uh, through the ringer. He's such a classic character. Uh, he deserves to be restored <laughs> to normal. Uh, so how this all ties into the ending of Immortal Hulk, if at all, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just completely its own thing. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But we do get a surprise appearance on the last page here uh, of a returning Hulk adjacent character that I'm very curious to hear what's been going on with him in his absence. So ultimately, if you're reading Immortal Hulk, you definitely should pick this up. Really, really fun. Great art from Lan Medina. Uh, very, very happy this book exists. I, I do recommend it for sure. Uh, again, it, it's just enriching the enriching the story that Al Ewing has been telling in the pages of, uh, of Immortal Hulk. Uh, all right, I guess I have another Marvel book. I didn't realize I was talking about six Marvel books tonight, uh, but I got to talk about this one because uh, it's a big one. It's Heroes Return number one. This is basically the final issue of the Heroes Reborn slash Heroes Return event that Jason Aaron wrote. He's the writer on this issue. Ed McGinnis handles the pencils. Mark Morales on inks. Matthew Wilson colors. And this wraps up, wraps it up, wraps up the event. Now, it does end in such a way that we may see another event spin out of this. It is entirely possible. Um, it may depend on how well the sales numbers are for the heroes. Uh Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return. I imagine I'm going to collect all this stuff in a trade. But I got to say, I'm not really... Like, if if they do another event that is a sequel to this, I don't think I would read it. Um, I don't know. This just felt like such an afterthought event. Uh, and Jason Aaron's an incredibly talented writer and has some really great ideas. And I think, ultimately, this is a great idea but the execution isn't the best for me. And, you know, I, I want to be careful what I say here because I've complained in the past about Marvel having these super sprawling events that cross over into every book. Like you think about King and Black, um, probably the, the biggest event sprawl would have been the, the Secret Wars uh, series from a few years ago that Jonathan Hickman did. And where the whole Marvel universe ended and then we got all these this new universe, new version of the Marvel universe ruled by Dr. Doom where we got all these mini series. And I think lasted like three or four, maybe five issues um, of kind of the new status quo, not so different from this, right? Where the whole premise of this heroes reborn thing was that there were no Avengers. Uh, the squadron Supreme of America was uh, the heroes of the day. Um, and it's just this whole idea of alternate reality we didn't get a lot of tie-ins to this. It was much more contained. And again, I don't want to say, Hey, I wish for more sprawl. What I think they should have done was maybe do, maybe do the spotlight issues that they had on particular members of the, the squadron Supreme. Cause they all sort of got their own sort of spotlight issue. Uh, the first one being Hyperion, but then he, 
within his number one issue, not only did we get a spotlight on him, but we got kind of setup of what the world was like. And then we got one for Dr. Spectrum and another for Blur, another for Princess Power, another for Nighthawk. If you could have just had some kind of prequel or prologues for them and then give the seven or six issues, whatever however you want to call it, you could argue seven because this hero's re- return is, you know, <laughs> basically the end of the story that comes right after heroes reborn number six. So this is like heroes reborn slash return part seven, right? You could name them all that instead of uh, naming the first six heroes reborn. And then this one heroes return when I mean, they name it heroes return. Cause as we see on the last page of heroes reborn number six, the Avengers, a new version of the Avengers show up blade, captain America, Phoenix, who's the, who's echo actually echo. Uh, the the blind daredevil character has the powers of Phoenix in this, uh, in this reality. Um, so anyway, we saw that on, at the end of, uh, of heroes reborn number six. Uh, and now here we get the confrontation between this version of the Avengers and the squadron Supreme. So um, again, I think it would have worked better if Aaron just had a little more space. And uh, I feel like even though we got six issues of heroes reborn, we didn't really, because, it didn't, you didn't get much in those spotlight issues. You got spotlights, but that didn't flesh out the world or the motivation or, or anything like that. So I don't know, at the end of the day, it just felt, it all felt a little predictable and a little forgettable. Um, and then the other thing I didn't like, and we saw this in the backup story in Heroes Reborn number six was that apparently Phil Coulson's the bad guy. Like he's teamed up with Mephisto and he's the one that has created this world. I, I thought, I thought Coulson was a hero and like beloved, but I, I don't know, maybe I missed something. Um, but it felt like Aaron really scapegoated him. And that didn't, that didn't feel right for me. So um, I just, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think maybe sitting down and reading this event all, all together may make it feel a little more cohesive and a little better, but I don't, I don't even think that would, would help. So, but I probably will at some point, I'll probably sit down and, and read it all together. Uh, I will say that even though they didn't have a lot of crossovers and I, I, again, going back to the idea of make sure Aaron has enough real estate to tell the story he wants to tell, but don't go too sprawling and expect people to, you know, break the bank trying to, to get the whole story. But I will say a lot of those, tie-ins that they did where it was like, no, the, the reality has always been this way. Let me just give you a, a story of one of these characters, one of these squadron Supreme members. And within the story, I'm going to call back to issues of comics that don't exist <laughs> as if these guys have been around, you know, and the, the Avengers never showed up. That was cool. It gave um, a richness to the world, even though those stories didn't necessarily tie in directly to the main narrative. So it was, it was ultimately it was okay. I'd probably get, give it like a six or a six and a half out of 10 uh, great art in this particular issue. Uh, and then I might rate it higher if I kind of understood if they were, if Jason Aaron was totally messing up Phil Coulson or not, it might make it easier for me to, uh, to grade it, but I'm just not sure. So uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about Nuclear Family number five from Aftershock. This is written by Stephanie Phillips. The art is by Tony Shastine. Colors by J.D. Mettler. 
Letters by Troy Petrie. This is the end of this series. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil what happens. What I'm going to say is, just like it has for the entire entirety of the series, Tony Shastine's art is absolutely tone perfect. Uh, the, the colors by J.D. Mettler have, I feel like, gotten a little darker with each issue, which has helped sort of ramp up the, the drama and the dystopian and sort of cynical feel of the story. This story is wonderful in its kind of subversion of, of what you think. I, I, I mentioned on social media, I think it was after issue four, how much I was enjoying it. But the fact that I had just read issue four, I'm 80% through the series and I'm still not sure what the story is, what the narrative is. I mean, I understand the events that are going on, but there's that underlying, okay, what's the point of this thing? And ultimately what happens makes perfect sense. And it's really cool. And there's action in here and there's drama and there's tension. And at the end of the day, it feels so much like a Twilight Zone episode that it's amazing, right? Like those best Twilight Zone episodes where you watch it and then you, it stays with you. You're thinking about it days later because did it really end? Do you really understand what you saw? It's all open to interpretation. Is the story even over? Was there a conclusion? It seems like it's open-ended. Things could come back. Like it's, it's just, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. It, it really shows Stephanie Phillips, her, her incredible level of talent. Uh, she's, she's done so many amazing things uh, over the past couple of years since she sort of came on the radar um, with her descendants uh, series here at, uh, at Aftershock. And now she's writing Harley and has written, uh, you know, other stuff for DC and anthologies and whatnot. Some wonder woman, um, so it's, it, it's just fantastic. I mean, this is, uh, this is one of those series that, you know, get your hand on the trade, gift it to somebody makes for just this really cool read. And, uh, and as Stephanie herself said, when, uh, when she came on to talk about this for an aftershock Monday, the Tony Shastine art, just, you know, when she, she got the story, she knew that's who she wanted. She was a hundred percent correct. Her storytelling instincts even for what the visuals should look like spot on another example of aftershock killing it on a book. This is just, just was, it was just so much fun. Um, it pulled in the kind of themes and of foreboding and um, fear and paranoia that at any moment those bombs could drop like that feeling in the fifties, uh, late fifties, early sixties when uh, nuclear war felt like it was imminent uh, so, you know, all that is captured here. It, it's just, it's just a fantastic story. Highly recommend it. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about one of my books of the week. Actually, I couldn't choose. I told you uh, about it earlier. I couldn't choose between Blue Fame 2 uh, and this book, Shadecraft Number 4, which is from the uh, Eisner-nominated team that gave us Skyward. So we have Joe Henderson writing. Lee Garbett is the artist. Antonio Fabella handles the colors, Simon Bolin letters. Wow. Um, just when we thought we knew where this story was going, uh, unlike nuclear family, I was just talking about where we weren't sure where the story was going. I feel like I've, I felt I've, I have felt like after each issue of Shadecraft, 
okay, now I see what they're doing. And then I read the next issue and I'm like, wait, so it wasn't what I thought, but now I know where it's going. And each issue, this creative team has managed to surprise me. And so once again, I'm going to say after issue four, okay, now I think I finally see where it's going. This book isn't at all what I thought it was originally. Um, well, I guess I shouldn't say that uh, because it, it, it's always felt somewhat, somewhat like a family book, like a family drama book. But what we learn is that apparently it's going to be a family drama book in a much different way than we're first introduced and, and expecting it to be. And so I, I was blown away by this issue. Uh, I thought, holy cow, this is absolutely brilliant. Uh, just, I mean, so good. So good. The, uh, the scripting and how it's paced out by Joe Henderson, the way he's pacing out these reveals is perfect. I think his, uh, his background in, in television and understanding that pacing and, uh, and story beats and cliffhangers and page turners and whatnot. It's like, it's him at the height of his powers in this issue. Uh, the other thing that makes this book absolutely shine is the artwork by Lee Garbett. There are two consecutive pages where uh, Zadie's sitting at the table with her parents and they're having a pretty tough conversation. And uh, on these two pages, they're both, they both have four panels that, that are widescreen. They go all the way across the page and the lighting and the, uh, the character acting, but in these two pages is amazing. And, you know, because I have a, a digital preview copy, I can kind of scroll and skip between the two pages and see the subtle differences in the panels between the two pages, because they are so similar. Uh, as things start to happen between Zadie and her mother, as her father looks on. And it, it, again, it shows the little moments as they're having this conversation and as the drama intention ramps up and uh, it's, it's fantastic. I, I love these two pages. Like this is going to be one, probably on my list for one of the top moments of, of 2021. This, um, this is zoo family, uh, conversation at the, around the dinner table, just absolutely fantastic. And, uh, as, as Joe himself did when he, he was on the show calling out the incredible color work of Antonio Fabella, because it is shade craft does have to do with shadows. Um, I will call it out as well. What incredible color work Antonio is doing on this because so much of what is done in the art here does have to do with the, the shadows and the, and the blackness and the darkness. And that's not anything that Lee Garbett is necessarily doing with line work. It has more to do with what Antonio is doing with color, which uh, also informs the mood and the tone of, of the book. And in a way affects the pacing as well. Um, just because I feel like when we get a little bit more somber mood with more dark colors and a lot of shadows that you, you sort of inherently start reading a little slower. Like it, it feels like it has a little more impact. It's more serious. So just a great comic. Um, if you're not reading Shadecraft, I think that you can pick up this issue four and, and pretty much understand what's going on. And you'll probably be sucked in immediately. I mean, obviously you should go back and look for the first three issues and read the whole thing, but 
I do think you can grab this. And if you're curious about it, pick this up because again, I think you can read this and grasp what's going on and, and know if you want to go back and look for those first three issues. So really, really great job from that, uh, that creative team. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, another big independent book uh, that's out this week, and maybe you've heard of this, Spawn Universe. Uh, so it's, well, it's actually Spawn's Universe number one uh, from uh, Todd McFarlane, writer Todd McFarlane, a lot of artists on it. We have Jim Chung, Brett Booth, Stephen Segovia, and Marcio Takara. We've got inks from Adaliso Corona and Todd McFarlane, lettering by Tom Orzakowski and Anne World Design. Colors by FCO Placencia, Andrew Dollhouse, and Peter Steigerwald. And uh, I love this. Previ it's got a little blurb here. Previously in Spawn, 318 issues have led to this, the founding of Spawn's universe, a universe of possibilities for Spawn and his allies, as well as his enemies. We hope you enjoy it. I don't, I feel like I don't hear enough people talking about this and how impactful and long-lasting this can be. I mean, Spawn is already the longest running creator own book in the history of comics, right? With 318 issues. I think as soon as he hit 301, Todd took that record because I think Cerebus by Dave Sim had held the record previously and that went up to issue 300. But what Todd has planned goes so much larger and further than just Spawn. Like this is the establishment of a new universe. He's calling it Spawn's universe, but he's bringing in other creators. And if those creators introduce characters or create characters, they will have a, a stake in those characters. You know, it's not like Todd's the big two and he's, uh, he's going to be basically taking dollars away from people. He'll give them a, a fair share, but he wants this universe to grow organically. I mean, this is sort of like getting in on the ground floor of the Marvel universe or the DC universe. And I, I know that's a big stretch because we don't know what's going to happen, but if anybody's going to make a new connected superhero universe work, it's going to be Todd McFarlane because the guy doesn't know how to quit, right? He's just so tenacious. He would say he's mule headed um, or stubborn, but uh, I would, I would use the word tenacious. He's going to give this his all. And, you know, whether you like spawn or not, whether you think it's high quality or not, the fact of the matter is he's been putting it out for almost 30 years and it still sells and it's still successful. So this could be the start of something big. And again, I'm not saying it because, oh, well, you got to love Spawn or Gunslinger Spawn or She Spawn or any of these other versions of Spawn that are currently in this universe. But this is going to lead to something else that could be a lot of characters other than Spawn because the creators he's bringing, bringing in are known names. They're known talents that have going to have their own ideas and they're going to have the freedom to sort of build whatever they want. I mean, obviously Todd has veto power to some extent, and you're going to want to make sure that you, you know, tell your own story and, and it fits within the confines, confines of the spawn universe, but it is something that's big and something that's momentous. And again, I wouldn't not, I would not predict that this would fail. I, I won't bet against Todd McFarlane. I just won't. Um, and I'll also say this, I, I've been buying Spawn for, I don't know, I think I jumped back on around 290, but I had fallen off like around issue 60. So I have a giant chunk of Spawn, like a lot of people. A lot of people fell off for a long time. And that's why those issues, and I'm not even sure exactly the issue numbers, maybe from 150 to like the 200s are 
are pretty tough to come by. Like individual issues will go for like 50 or $60 cause there's such a low print run. And as spawn got close to 300, there was a renewed interest just like me buying it again. Um, but I say all that to say this, I, I'm not caught up. Like, I don't feel like I understand exactly what's going on with, and even though I've been buying it since 300, I haven't necessarily been reading it because I've kind of want to go back and fill in those chunks either with digital copies um, that I can buy somewhere or, or maybe I'll buy some big trades or whatnot um, and just sit down and read spawn from issue one all the way up uh, and get caught up on it. Um, but even though I, I'm not caught up on it, I felt like the spawn universe issue was accessible. I felt like I read it and the way Todd lays it out, there's enough exposition and, and explanation here to kind of understand what's going on and, and maybe be able to just, you know, read this and then check out the new titles that are coming down the line. Uh, Cause they're teased in here. Um, the other thing that's cool about it is at least in the digital version that I got, um, all the a lot of the covers, the alternate covers. And I love when they do that because then I still get to check them out and I don't have to go and buy all the different covers. I did buy, I think three, I bought the McFarlane cover. I bought the, I think it's by J Scott Campbell uh, gunslinger spawn cover. And then there's a, there's a medieval spawn J uh, Scott Campbell. So I bought three of the covers, but I didn't buy all of them. Um, but you get those in the digital and then we know there's a King Spawn series coming. There's a Gunslinger uh, Spawn book coming. And then there's The Scorched coming. So again, I would not bet against Todd McFarlane. This, uh, you probably want to go and grab this. You're going to want to grab Spawn's Universe number one. Check it out. Maybe it won't be for you, but maybe one of the other Spawn books that's coming or Spawn Universe books that's coming later might, uh, might interest you. So, uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about Stray Dogs number five. This is one of Jay's favorite books. Unfortunately, couldn't join me today, but it's written by Tony Fleeks. Art is by Trish Forstner. Colors by Brad Simpson. Layouts by Tony Rodriguez with Chris Burnham. The flatter is Lauren Perry. And uh, this is the conclusion of this book. And I, I told Jay, you know, we get a little ad in the back, a little house ad that says Stray Dogs Dog Days Number One coming soon. So we know we're getting another stray dog series, which is great. But what I wonder, cause there's a bunch of different scenarios here, right? Like maybe Tony Fleeks had an idea for this second stray dogs series before the first one even came out, or maybe it was the success of the first one that he's like, Oh, I got to come up with another idea. Or it may have been, he always had the idea. He's got multiple ideas for stray dog stories because he loves dogs. And he's got three or four or five. And because of the first stray dog story was such a success, he's getting to continue. I don't know what, which one of those scenarios is, is closest to the truth. But what I do know is this, if he keeps telling stories in the same way that this first stray dog series was told, with the incredible art from Trish Forstner, he's going to, he's going to have to keep producing stray dogs comics because you don't have to be a dog lover to enjoy this. So this is tension filled, perfectly paced, wonderful storytelling that has emotional and dramatic impact that is so 
gorgeous to look at with this Disney style art of Trish Forstner. It's that juxtaposition of this art that looks like, you know, Lady and the Tramp type cartoony action or story, but it's not that. It's a much more mature story, a much, you know, again, you talk about subverting the ideas of what you expect in a comic. And when you look at a comic with this type of art, you expect a certain type of story. Oh, this is a kid's book. This is all ages. And it is not that at all. And I just love that whole idea. Um, and it ends up being a great story. And it, yeah, if, don't get me wrong. If you have a lot of dogs or love dogs and we've got three, my family has three. So clearly we're a dog family. You're going to love this um, because it really does kind of showcase some of those things that are, are best about dogs, their loyalty, their bravery. Um, and it's just cool. It's just, it's a celebration of, you know, our, our, our little four-legged family members um, with really cool art that, as I said, is a subversion of, of what the type of story is, because this is very much, I wouldn't say horror, but it's closer to horror than, than anything else. You know, it's uh, uh, maybe true crime might be better somewhere in there, true crime horror, um, but just, just a fantastic story. Like so, so good. And, uh, and not only will I say that Trish Forstner's kind of Disney-esque art is one of the best things about the series and, and how it subverts expectations based on kind of the style of it, it's not just that it's Disney-style art and looks beautiful. She is an incredible storyteller from how she chooses to lay out her panels to what she does with, with the Zoom on the camera um, in the panels where sometimes we have extreme close-ups. The other thing is almost the entire, almost the entire book is shown from the perspective of the dogs, right? Like the camera angles are low to the ground. We, I think we spend the first three issues before we even see the, the person that has all these dogs in, in their house before we even see his face, like three or four issues in, because everything is down at that dog level, right? The series is called Stray Dogs. This is, this book is about the dogs and the dog's relationship and the dog's discoveries and, and the dog's bravery and loyalty to each other. Like I said, that whole idea of being a pack and belonging. And so, uh, you know, I give Trish Forstner and, and Tony Fleeks, because obviously that he must have, um, you know, asked Trish, they must have talked about it in terms of, hey, this is what the, the POV is going to be, the point of view is going to be from the, the perspective of the dogs and it works perfectly. And again, it helps to sell that idea of this is a book about dogs, right? It's called stray dogs and it's called, uh, and it, and it's told from the perspective of the dogs. So just fantastic, really, really great. And, um, some poignant moments and sadness. And uh, again, I know Joy, Joy, uh, Jay really loved it. Um, when we were talking about the books, he, he's like, man, I, I should have read stray dogs last <laughs> instead of reading it first, but he loves it so much. He wanted to, to check it out first. And so uh, he did. And then that kind of was emotional for him. So uh, anyway, last book that um, I'm going to check out, which I only have a physical copy of is blue flame. Number two from writer, Christopher Cantwell, Adam Gorham, artist, Kurt, Michael Russell on colors, Hassan, Atzman, Elhow on letters. Again, it's my, my co-book of the week. 
absolutely stunning. I'm, I'm going to use that word again. It's uh, you guys are going to get tired of hearing me say it. Right. Because so many of the best books right now are, are subverting the genre, right? Radiant black. Uh, Kyle Higgins has a new book coming out called ordinary gods that does it. Um, Shadecraft. I mentioned giving us something unexpected and that's where, what we have here in, in blue flame number two from what Christopher Cantwell told us and the things he wanted to explore in the second issue starts off with this big event, this big sort of game changer. And then how that plays into the other part. We know it's a dual narrative. We've been told that, right? Like one of the stories in the Midwest, I think it's Wisconsin um, telling this blue collar story of these, uh, these heroes, the night brigade uh, that includes the blue flame. Sam is his name. And then the story of Sam when he's in outer space and this fantastical story where uh, straight out of encounter at far point, if you're a star Trek fan, you'll, you'll know that um, Picard was, uh, was taken by the Q continuum and he was made to, to, to answer or defend humanity. Uh, and that's the same thing Sam is having to do. He's being, he's saying, Hey, all of humanity, human race as a species is being put on trial. You need to defend them. Why should we allow them to continue to exist? We think they may be a threat uh, to the galaxy or the universe or what have you. Um, so two different narratives going on and, and what does that mean? And how does the big event that happens within the first couple pages of issue two play in and tie into both narratives because it is an absolute game changer. And when I read it, I kept thinking like, is this a dream or is, is this what Sam is, is, you know, he's stuck on this planet out in outer space and he's, he's imagining or he's dreaming or like, when is, when is this not going to be a thing? And no, it turns out it just, Cantwell doubles down on it. Um, and we see more consequences of it as the book plays out. Uh, and then the scenes with Sam on the planet, we start to sort of question, like, you know, initially I think, well, who are these aliens to be judging the human race? Like what, what right do they have other than apparently they have the power to wipe us out if uh, they don't like what they hear from Sam, but who are they to judge? But then as Sam starts to look at things and hear perspective from the aliens, you start to think, well, man, maybe these aliens aren't so far off. Right. Or, or maybe you just need to watch the nightly news <laughs> or, I don't know. I guess the argument can be made. You could just need to go on Twitter to see that, yeah, us as a species, maybe we're not all we're cracked up to be really don't deserve to be around anymore. So, um, and I know that's super cynical, but I, you know, I've said before many times comics, I love the most are comics that make you think, and there's a lot of that here. Uh, plus the other thing is based on that event that happened in the first couple pages and how it might inform Sam and his mission in outer space, and with how tightly paced this is uh, and plotted, like there's not an, there's not a panel wasted at all. And I felt like we've got a big chunk of story, but as soon as it was done, it was one of those situations where no, no, it can't be done yet because I want more. I want more of the story immediately. Uh, and to me, that's a sign of a truly great comic where you've got that, part of the story, you know, you just, I just got another big part of the story and I immediately want more. So I guarantee you what I'll do sometime in the next couple of days is I'll go back and reread issue one and then reread issue two, 
one right after the other to feel like I get an even bigger chunk of the story. And I'll probably do that a couple times before issue three comes out because I just want to live in this world more. Uh, I want more of this, this world and this narrative and this story that Christopher Cantwell is giving us because it's just, it engenders so many questions. It's so fascinating. There's so many cool things to, to think about and wonder and guess where the story is going and just see narratively um, and technically how good of a comic uh, the creative team has put together. So, uh, all right. Well, that, that does it for the books that I'm going to talk about in a little more detail. Let me give a rundown on some other books that you might want to be on the lookout for. Bequest number four from Tim Seeley and uh, Freddie Williams the uh, second is out from Aftershock this week, Phantom on the Scan, written by Cullen Bunn, another Aftershock book. That one is is really fantastic. Action pack, horror, kind of body horror. Not my favorite kind of art. It's painted, um, kind of a watercolor style. So I usually prefer art that's a little less impressionistic, I, th- I think is the right term. But it's a, it's a minor complaint because it does tonally suit the story, the kind of horrific feel of the story. And the story is just super cool. Um, so that's out as well. Uh, over at Boom, we've got Good Luck, number one of five, which I don't know much about, but supposedly it's doing really well. Uh, I didn't see too many copies of it left uh, at my comic shop when I went to pick up my books today. And we also have, uh, speaking of a series doing really well, Something is Killing the Children, number 17 from James Tynan is out this week as well. Uh, the DC books. And again, we talked about all these on the DC spotlight. So go check those out. Remember there are our spoilers. We've got action comics, number 1032. We've got Batman reptilian number one of six with incredible art from Liam Sharp. That's definitely my DC book of the week. Uh, Batman Superman number 19 from Gene Luen Yang with a whole host of artists. That was a lot of fun. Checkmate number one, which is continuing the Leviathan rising event Leviathan event from uh, Brian Michael Bendis Uh, detective comics, number 1038. We've got uh, dreaming waking hours, number 11 of 12 Harley Quinn, number four from Stephanie Phillips and Riley Rosmo infinite frontier. Number one of six from Jonathan, uh, sorry, Joshua Williamson and Zermonico does the art there. That's a pretty important book. Probably going to have, some pretty big impact and repercussions on the DC universe uh, for the next year, at least uh, justice league. Number 63 is out Mr. Miracle, the source of freedom. Number two of six from Brandon Easton and uh Fikeo Osio was really, really good as well. Uh, Robin number three, Superman number 32 teen Titans Academy. Number four, uh, Wonder Woman number 774, and then Wonder Woman Black and Gold number one of six, which uh, is another one of those limited color palette anthologies. And that one's really good. Like some incredible art in uh, in that anthology. I do recommend uh, picking that up, whether you're a Wonder Woman fan or not. Um, and whether you think the stories are any good or not, it's worth picking up just for the art, especially the Ryan Six story. Just incredible. Uh, over at Image, in addition to the books I talked about, Ascender number 16 from uh, writer Jeff Lemire. Maybe you've heard of him, uh, Sweet Tooth. Uh, his uh, TV show on Netflix based on uh, Lemire's comic is uh, on a lot of people's lips these days. Uh, art is by Dustin Wynn on that one. Uh, Bitterroot number 14, Eisner winning series from David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, Sanford Green. Uh, Homesick Pilots number six got manifest destiny number 44 philadelphia number 14 
Old Guard Tales Through Time, number three of six from Greg Rucka. Um, Undiscovered Country, number 13 from writer Scott Snyder and Charles Soule. Also, there's a new mini called Vinyl, number one of six. And I know Jay really liked that one. I didn't get a chance to read it, but Jay really liked it. Uh, that's out from uh, Image as well. And then over at Marvel, in addition to the books I talked about, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy, number 15. We've got Marvel Voices of Pride, number one, which is a big anthology, $9.99, celebrating Pride Month, um, just like DC had at the beginning of the month. Uh, Reptile, number two of four. Sword, number six. Silk, number four of five. Uh, Star Wars Darth Vader, number 13, which ties into the whole uh, Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters, which I know, I know we're behind on that. Manny has been unavailable to record those, so we're really hoping to get some of those recorded for you and, and get some multiple episodes out this week. Um, also, Wolverine, number 13, and then X-Men Legends, number four, which is a Walter Simonson, Louise Simonson story, uh, is out this week. Uh, over at Valiant, we have a Shadow Man number three. And from Vault, in addition to Blue Flame number two, which I talked about, we have Giga number four and Wasted Space number 21 from Michael Morisi. So those are some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, really good week, really solid, um, great books all around. I think DC has some strong titles, but for me, yeah, Blue Flame two and Shadecraft number four are the real cream of the crop this week. And I, I highly recommend both of those books for sure. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Hope you enjoyed uh, this trip through the uh, books for the week of June 23rd, 2021. As always, we want to thank everybody for listening and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.